Is there any good reason to be advocating euthanasia from a biblical perspective or a non-biblical perspective? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, July the 25th, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. Of course, on Wednesdays, we do apologetics and cultural issues, and last week, we covered uh, the topic of euthanasia from a biblical perspective. And if you haven't listened to that yet, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last Wednesday's message before you listen to this message. Unless the biblical perspective just doesn't matter to you. If you want to learn how to respond to advocates of euthanasia, you don't want to miss today's podcast. That's going to be our topic today. This is part two of our euthanasia study. But very quickly, I want to thank those of you who have come over to Scripture Forums and registered. Thank you so much. I you know, I really hope to get to know uh, all of you who have registered. Of course, down in the Bible study section, you'll see that I've posted uh, this past Monday's uh, podcast. So if you have any notes or thoughts or or whatever you want to share, you know, just click on there and and you know, start talking. Let's let's interact. That's something that that you guys can can do with each other and of, and of course I will participate as well. I just think that would be a lot of fun for everybody who's been listening to these podcasts. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and uh, and get started here. But let's start with a word of prayer as always. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and Lord, thank you so much for revealing to us how valuable life is to you, That we, like we saw last week. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, there are people in this world today, as you know, who don't recognize the authority of Scripture and who have arguments that they're trying to defeat us with. And so, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would enable us to overcome those arguments and to convince them logically to see things your way. For your glory, Lord, help us learn how to defend your position logically today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, like I said, in our last lesson, we looked at some of the support that we can find in Scripture for eliminating the possibility of, you know, euthanasia as an ethical or justifiable option. Instead, you know, Scripture, you know, pretty much very clearly prohibits euthanasia. We saw that life, all life, belongs ultimately to God and God alone, and that he alone has sovereignty over life. But what about people who don't recognize the authority of Scripture? How can we respond to them in a logical and rational way that will make sense to them? Because we're not going to see eye to eye with them scripturally, so let's try to see eye to eye with them logically. Let's look at some of the arguments that they might use to advocate euthanasia. And of course, this list is by no means complete or exhaustive. All I've tried to do here is, you know, find the most common and most powerful arguments in favor of euthanasia and to respond to those. So the first objection that you might come across is, first of all, don't tell a dying person what to do unless you've walked a mile in their shoes. That's something that they would say 
in favor of euthanasia, that we don't have the right to judge them or to tell them what to do until we've walked a mile in their shoes. And the basic underlying statement here is that unless you have experienced what it's like to be terminally ill or to uh, to undergo chronic pain or you know the, the type of immense suffering that would drive someone to wish to end their life, unless you've experienced all that, you can't assess whether or not it's moral or ethical, you know, uh, to do so. You can't assess the morality or the ethics pertaining to their situation. But if you think about it, this type of thinking is just, it's ridiculous. It's, it's absolute nonsense. First of all, who are they to pass judgment on you? Have they walked a mile in your shoes to understand why you would come to the conclusion that you have? Walking a mile in someone else's shoes is required for you, but not for them? you know, to judge your position? Obviously, this is a two-way street. Secondly, what is morally right and morally wrong isn't determined by whether or not we have experienced it. If that's the case, then, you know, who am I to say that uh, slavery, for example, is wrong? I haven't experienced it, right? I haven't walked a mile in their shoes. I haven't walked a mile in the shoes of the slave owner or the slave. So how can I say that uh, that slavery is wrong? Just because I haven't done so, just because I haven't walked a mile in their shoes, does that mean that I'm not able to determine whether slavery is morally right or morally wrong? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Third, Someone who is in pain is not thinking clearly. They're not thinking as clearly as someone who is free from the distraction and the emotional turmoil brought about by the the presence of pain or, or chronic suffering. Who should make the decision then? Someone who is thinking clearly or someone whose thinking is hampered or held back by the presence of this pain and suffering? I think it's pretty clear. The person who can think clearly should be the one making the decision. So to say that we don't have the right to assess whether it's, you know, a right or wrong decision until we've walked a mile in their shoes, that that argument doesn't work at all. And that's that's three ways I think I gave you, three ways that you can respond to to that argument. Now the next argument that I want to consider is putting someone out of their suffering is the merciful thing for us to do. And somebody'll say there's there's no need for somebody to suffer for no reason at all. You know, after all, that's what we do with with animals like horses and dogs. That's what we do when when they get so sick or wounded. Uh, you know, we euthanize them. So, first of all, in response, first of all, to liken human beings to animals is a category mistake. So, to do that, to 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 assume this is fallacious. Only from a humanistic or or maybe a a new age perspective is a human being morally equivalent to an animal. We can't be compared to animals because we are not animals. Secondly, this argument assumes a priori that there is no value in suffering, but nothing could be further from the truth. For uh, for the child or the offspring who sees his parent, you know, ready to die and agreeing to die instead of staying alive for the sake of spending more time with, with his children, what does it teach the children about the value of their own lives. The Bible teaches us that we're to endure suffering. First Peter 2.19 says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
And of course, as we noted last week, you know, um, third, uh, in places where euthanasia is legal, like the Netherlands, 95% of all requests for euthanasia come from people who are suffering from mental illnesses, not physical suffering. It's the doctors who aren't diagnosing their patients correctly and who are agreeing to euthanize them. The doctors just aren't doing their job there because they have the option of euthanizing their patients per request. Fourth, uh, and, and this is this is you know totally ridiculous if you think about it. As advanced as medicine has become, there are just there are very few instances in which chronic pain or suffering cannot be treated. In fact, uh, you know if you think about it, it's ironic, isn't it, that the better we've become at treating pain with medication, the more advanced science and medication have become the more people are pushing for the legalization of euthanasia. And why do you think that is? It's because, you know, basically human life is no longer seen as having any value. Fifth, uh, if killing someone who is going to suffer justifies killing them, why not just go ahead and kill everyone right now? I mean, after all, we all have death looming over our shoulders, and we are all moving closer to our deaths at every moment. And so, you know, one could reasonably say that, uh, you know, that everybody has some sort of suffering in their future. So why not just kill everybody right now if suffering in the future justifies killing someone? So this whole argument that it's more merciful to kill someone, uh, it doesn't work at all. It's it's not it doesn't it doesn't add up at all. So let's move on to the next argument that you might hear, and that is that if euthanasia is what a patient wants, we should keep that option open for them. Now, the main problem with this argument is that it assumes a priori, and of course, when I say a priori, that means uh, you kind of assume something without justifying it. Uh, so the main problem with this is that it assumes a priori that what a person wishes for is automatically what is best for them, and thus that's you know what we should provide for them. But let me assure you, friends, that if this were the case, if we should give everyone you know what they wish for, then my children, and I've got two of them, uh, one that's nine and one that's six, my children would be having candy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and dessert uh, every single day. And that is if we were to give them exactly what they want, what they wish for. And, you know, even if we were to only apply this to dying people, you know, what if a dying person wishes that his grandchildren be fed nothing but gummy bears for the rest of their lives? You know, should, uh, should we follow his wishes? Of course not. So, you know, we can't assume that what a person wishes for is automatically what is best. Second of all, the statistics that we've talked about regarding the abuse of euthanasia in the Netherlands indicate that we should not keep euthanasia as an option. Remember, 95% of patients who request euthanasia in the Netherlands suffered from mental illness. And there were thousands upon thousands of cases every year in the Netherlands in which the option of euthanasia was exercised without the patient's consent. Third, this argument stems from, you know, basically the humanist worldview, which asserts that there is no higher authority than man. So, you know, therefore, for the dying person, there is no authority higher than himself or herself. You know, here in America, our Declaration of Independence specifically says that we owe our existence to the Creator. That's God. The Constitution gives us the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, not 
the right to death, non-existence, and nothingness. Fourth, you know, how can euthanasia be part of a person's individual freedom? Suicide is the elimination of freedom. Euthanasia is the elimination of freedom. Even the freedom that we have is limited. But we don't have the freedom to remove the freedoms that we have. If you think we do, you know, by all means, go ahead and try suing the United States government, insisting that they no longer allow you to have the freedom of speech. Now, there are a lot of ways to make a fool out of yourself, and if you're uh, listing them off from best to worst, that one's got to be toward the top. So to say that we should have this option open for, you know, for somebody who wants euthanasia is, is absolutely ridiculous. We can't leave options open for people regardless of morality. Now, the fourth argument that you might run into is by allowing euthanasia, you know, legally, we're allowing people to die with dignity. And this is actually the uh, the last argument that we're going to be looking at today. But this whole thing about dying with dignity is, it's absolutely ridiculous. I want you to think about this for a second. To have dignity, you just, you know, give up and die. There's dignity in giving up and dying. You know, this is an absolutely ridiculous idea. How can the elimination of life and freedom be dignified? How can there be dignity in that? No act that destroys or ends a life dignifies it, not in any way, not by any means. If somebody wants to die with dignity, don't you think it would be better for them to uh, to face death with courage and determination to live? You know, since when is fear or submission more dignified than courage? And, you know, one analogy that you'll get to this is that in mixed martial arts, like in the, the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, that there is dignity in tapping out or submitting. But, you know, that's completely different. You know, when you're watching UFC, the reason somebody taps out is so that they can have the opportunity and the life to fight another day. It's, you know, it's basically when somebody taps out or when somebody submits, it's swallowing your pride and facing defeat graciously in order to acknowledge the victory of of your opponent respectfully. And so so that you can live to fight another day, so you can live to fight again. You know, I've I've watched UFC, I've seen guys who have refused to tap out or submit uh, the last year when Hoist Gracie fought Matt Hughes, you know, that comes to mind. That's one example. But uh, but believe me, it is not dignified to say that you'll fight to the death rather than submit or rather than tap out. Tapping out in mixed martial arts is for the preservation of life. It's not for the end of it. So this would be an example of what we would call a false analogy in philosophy. So even if somebody says, you know, that they want to allow they want to allow people to die with dignity. You know, maybe their intentions are good, but there is no dignity in reaching a good end through the use of evil means. And if it were, if there were dignity in that, then, you know, one could be justified in murdering another person for the sake of robbing them so that the murderer could afford to buy a bottle of baby food for their starving child. Good ends don't justify evil means. The means have to justify themselves. If the means are an immoral act, then, you know, if you can't get to the end without using those means, then you don't get to the end. The means have to be morally justifiable in and of 
themselves. So these are four arguments that you might run into. Of course, last week, you know, I was planning on going over these, but, you know, uh, once I got talking about euthanasia and, and the biblical perspective, there really wasn't enough time. I, I, you know, I don't want to take a podcast over half an hour, but obviously, you know, if we would have included this with last week's podcast, it would have gone a little bit too long. I like to keep it short because, you know, who has, you know, half an hour or 45 minutes in their day to uh, to listen to me? Or who wants to listen to me for that long, for that matter? But uh, anyway, thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope that this has been helpful to you. And, you know, of course, if you have any questions uh, about euthanasia or, you know, or any matter, but about euthanasia, um, or if you hear an argument that you don't know how to counter or an objection that you don't know how to respond to, by all means, send send your objections and your questions into me. I'll be more than happy to help you out. But just remember that as Christians, from a biblical worldview, there's just so much value to life, and it's not ours for the taking. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I will see you next week. Until then, keep growing closer to Jesus.